Thank you for joining us for Working Through the Word, a ministry of the Richmond Church of Christ. Let's join our pulpit minister, Mike Johnson, as he brings today's lesson. We are considering today the text of Ephesians chapter 4 as we think about the grace of God. We're going to be talking about the grace of God on a number of occasions during this summer, especially in the evening. And I hope that this will be of benefit to you. If you have some thoughts, some questions, some ideas about the grace of God that you would like to share uh, with me and then I can work into some lessons, uh, I would certainly be glad to have those. And so tonight, if you'll turn to Ephesians 4, we're going to be in that passage uh, basically uh, with some other thoughts in just a moment. I feel a little bit like tonight the country preacher who went to the small congregation out in the country to preach one Sunday. And when he got ready to preach, there was one person sitting in the building. And he thought to himself, what should I do? And he thought, okay, whoever's here is who I'm going to preach to. And therefore, he just preached. He went on for about an hour and gave that full dissertation. And then as we preachers do, uh, when it was over, he went to the back and he waited for the man to come out. And when the man came out, he said, Preacher, I'm a farmer. And if I go to the field with a truckload or tractor load of hay to feed the cows, and only one cow shows up, I do not give him the whole load. Well, there are about seven of us in this building. And I'm a preacher. And the ones who are here are going to get the full load, just like everybody else online. Let's think for a few minutes about the grace of God. I gave you an acrostic this morning. It was my way of defining the concept of grace as I preach about it. I would love to hear your feedback on this idea, but here is my acrostic that I'm working with today. And I think it will be the guiding thing for the rest of the summer. God's reach, accepting Christ's effort. We noticed this morning that God reached down to us. This word grace in the Old Testament referred to a stronger reaching to help a weaker. And in the New Testament, predominantly, it is the concept of providing that which makes life worth living, to give one a sense of well-being. And so we might say that the grace of God was God in His greatness reaching down to us in our need to give us a life that is worth living. That is the grace of God. And this morning we saw Him reaching down. Tonight I want us to notice that He accepts Christ's effort. There's a lot that we need to say about the grace of God, and I'm glad that we have all summer to get it all in. But I want you to notice the text as it was laid before us. Uh, if you have the outline, I will be following it in a general fashion, but uh, I may skip around just a little bit tonight. Particularly, I want to notice these verses, verses 8 through 10. I think we need to understand what the meaning behind these verses happens to be. 
Verse 8 is a quote from Psalm 68 and verse 18. It is also found in the words of Agur, the wise man who wrote Proverbs 30 and 31. In Proverbs 30 and verse 4, he makes the same concept or the same reference. And he's, he's asking the question, as happens in verse 9 and 10. The whole point of this question is this. Can anyone do what Jesus did? Has anybody been where Jesus was in order to come here and tell us about what is there? And they can't. of course the answer is no. There have been others who have left this world, but there has been no one who has gone into the presence of God and then come to earth to tell us what was there and then go back to God. Never has that happened except in the case of Jesus. And so Jesus is the ascendant one. He is the one who is the Son of God. And we're going to consider that concept a little more deeply in just a minute. But He is the ascendant one who has descended. And I want you to think about the importance of that. The ascendant one who has descended. And of course, He has ascended again. First of all, let us think about this. God reached down and has accepted Christ's effort. He has accepted it. I want you to go backwards now to Romans chapter 3. And I want to look verses 21 through 26. And I want to concentrate on a phrase that happens in verse 26 at the close. Notice what it says of God. God is both just and justifier. Let's think about that for a minute. God accepts or accepted the effort of Jesus when He came here. God is just. To be just means that He upholds that which is right and He despises that which is wrong. He rewards that which is good and He punishes that which is evil. That's what it means to find justice, to be just. We want someone in our world, in our court system, we want a judge who is just. We want the judge to say, if evil has been done, if crime has been committed, if wrong has been done, we want that wrong to be fixed through punishment. We want that thing to be shown and punishment so that others will not want to do that at the same time. We want that judge to look at the situation. And if in that situation there is no crime, there is nothing evil, we don't want that judge out of personal prejudice or personal opinion to go ahead and punish anyway. We want that one to be rewarded. And so in our system of justice, we want reward and we want punishment. God is just. God is just. There's a difference, I think, 
When we speak of God and we say God is versus God chooses, I think those are two different things. Here's what I mean by that. To say that God is love, 1 John speaks of that a lot, that's a different thing than to say He chooses to love. God is love. It is His nature to love. When in Titus, Paul wrote that God, it is impossible for Him to lie. It is not that He chooses not to lie. It's that His nature keeps Him from lying. He cannot lie. God is just. And He cannot be any other way because that's His nature. He is just. And therefore, as it relates to us, it is God's justice that demands punishment and reward. Look at verse 23 of Romans 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin must be punished. Sin has consequence. Sin demands something to be done. And in God's justice, in the justice part of His personality or His character, that must be handled. And because man sinned, God in His justice had to find in His nature a penalty price paid for sin. That means that God could just not say, okay, you've sinned, but you know what? I'm just going to overlook it. That's not just. In His nature, He needed to have a punishment. He needed to have a sacrifice. And He accepted Jesus as that punishment for the sins of people. And therefore, in His Justice, he demanded punishment. Jesus took it. But number two, he is the justifier. Notice what happens, verse 21. Now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And on all and to all who believe, for there is no difference. God demanded the, possess, the uh, purchase uh, or the penalty for the sin, and then He accepted it once it was given in Jesus Christ. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. God accepted Jesus' effort. It was a demand based on the nature of God, to punish that which was evil. And it was also a part of His nature to say, once that price has been paid, once that penalty has been levied, I accept it. 
so that he is just in causing the penalty and he is justifier in accepting the penalty. God is just and he's a justifier. And through Jesus, he accepted it. Number two, in order for the ascendant one to descend, Jesus had to accept his mission. Just as God accepted his son, the ascendant one, to descend, Jesus had to accept his mission. Now, Jesus was not paraded in front of God with other beings in heaven, and God said, I choose you. That's not how it works. There was only one option. There was not another option. It was God himself presenting himself, descending from his ascendant place. Jesus became Incarnate. Let me give you an idea of things relating to Jesus accepting his mission. Look at Philippians chapter 2, and we start at verse number 5. Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. His incarnation was humiliating. I was thinking about this today, trying to get it in my mind. This is where I am right now. To be humble is an internal state of mind that each one of us needs to adopt. When humility, that humble attitude, becomes known, and because of it being known, one pays a penalty, suffers because of it. That person is then humiliated. Philippians 2 says, Jesus was humiliated. It was his humble attitude that sent him here. But it was that humble attitude that brought others to humiliate him in public because of what he did. For you and me, Jesus accepted his humiliating mission. Number two, it was a glorious mention or a mission. In John 1 in verse 14, the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation was glorious. You mean it was glorious because of his human body? It was glorious because of the temptations that he had to endure. It was glorious because of the failures of people around him. No, it was glorious in spite of every one of them. Notice what the text says. We beheld his glory. How do we see the glory of Jesus? How does the glory of Jesus become displayed before us when we realize what he did. He accepted his mission and he became in a, or came in a humiliated state. It's glorious. We all can think of people who because of sacrifice, because of actions they have done, their lives then become glorified. They are held up and honored and appreciated. Sometimes statues are made. Books are written. Movies are produced. The glory... It's not in the life, it's in the life that brings the death or that brings the sacrifice. And Jesus' mission was glorious. And he accepted getting glory through that means. Number three, he accepted this powerful mission. Look at Romans 8 and verse number 3. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh God did by sending His own Son and condemning sin in the flesh. Notice what the passage says. What it could, the law could not do. And yet, through Jesus, the power happened. Now, we've often said, and in speaking about the law of Moses, that's one way to look at the law. Another way to look at the law is just the law of life. There is the special law called the Jewish law. But then there is the concept of law. That is the concept of saying, do this or die. Law, the concept of law will never be able to save anyone. 
Because the moment that someone becomes a lawbreaker, the law no longer can save that person. And since every person breaks a law, law can't save anyone. But neither could the special law of Moses save anyone. Because everyone would fail in it. But even if they were able somehow to keep most of it, shall we say, the, the blood of bulls and goats can't do in the justice of God what needs to be done. But Jesus came in the flesh and in that way powerfully demonstrated who he was. Because even because he, the only one, in fleshly form, perfectly kept the law of Moses and the general law of life. Do this and die. He didn't do these. He was perfect. And the sacrifices of the Old Testament were not needed for him because he kept the law perfectly. But his was a powerful mission to show that without the Ascendant One descending, we would all be hopeless. Number four, Jesus accepted a mysterious mission. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Paul said in writing about the mystery, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. I don't think he is trying to tell me that this perfectly explains every detail of the Godhead. Not possible. When we think about the Godhead and we think about God descending to become man, that's mysterious. How can that be? It doesn't make sense in our human minds that God could become flesh. It doesn't make sense that God could come in a form that would still have him be God and at the same time be human. That's mysterious. The only way I understand it is by reading what it says and saying that's what it means right there. Because I can't give you the details, but I can tell you this. I can set some parameters. I can say that all of the time that the Ascendant One was descended, He was fully God and fully human. And for my mind, I think it means this. When He experienced something in His human nature, He did not allow His God nature to support His human nature so that he would not fail. 
No, he experienced and he defeated everything we do in life as a human, not allowing his deity to support his humanity. He was fully human. In the garden when he prayed, let this cup pass from me. In his God nature, he knew that it had to be done. But in his human nature, he didn't want it. And he asked God to take it away. But he was able, in this mysterious way, to fulfill his mission so that God would accept it. So what was the mission? John chapter 1, beginning verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. What was the mission that Jesus accepted and that God accepted on our behalf? He was the Word in eternity. To help me get that in my mind, Think about this, Genesis 1. And God said, let there be light. That word that he spoke is the word of eternity. Think about every prophet that prophesied. The words which they spoke was the Word in eternity. But the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became encapsulated in time. In eternity, Word is a concept, an idea, a reality, yes but boundless. But in time, it needs a form. It needs an image. It needs definition. And the Word became flesh. And everything that He said was the Word of God. And everything that He did matched the Word of God in time. But that's not all he did. He was the Word in eternity. He became the Word in time and the last word, maybe, that we will see in eternity is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 28. 
1 Corinthians 15. When all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. The sacrifice of Jesus is such, I think, that in eternity, when we are all there for eternity, we will see the Word in eternity who came in time. Speak the Word that God is supreme. And then He will be subject to the Father for eternity, just as all of us in eternity will be with Him in the presence of and subject to the God of heaven. God reached accepting Christ's effort on our behalf so that we could come into his family. Our text in Ephesians 4 and verse 8 then says, And when he had ascended up on high, he gave gifts to men. A number of times this summer, we're going to consider those gifts. What has He given to us? What gifts did He give when He ascended again? Because I think by thinking about those things, we will see the particular way in which each one of us has been graced by God, through Jesus, as a part of this community, a part of His family, with responsibilities, again, as we said this morning, our individual individuality being graced for the purpose of benefiting the whole. The grace given to individuals to benefit the whole. And that's our plan throughout this summer. Thank you for joining us tonight. And I do hope that this message of the grace of God has challenged your thought and will continue to do so. And as we think about these individual gifts given to men, particularly from the book of Ephesians, I hope you'll enjoy the study with us and give me some ideas of your thoughts. I'll be glad to listen and hear as we all learn, particularly on these Sunday nights, about the grace of God. Again, if there's anything we can do to help you in your relationship with the Lord, please let us know. Let us help you during these times even. and We would be glad to, to give you some time to help out in whatever fashion you need in your life. Uh, may God bless our world. May God bless His church. May God bless the Richmond church. 
and every single one of us. We hope you enjoyed today's broadcast brought to you by the Richmond Church of Christ. We are located at 1500 Lancaster Road in Richmond, Kentucky. We meet on Sunday mornings for Bible class at 9 a.m., followed by our morning worship service held at 10 a.m. Our Sunday evening service is held at 6 p.m., and our midweek Bible study is held on Wednesday at 7 p.m. If you are in the area, we would love to have you as our honored guest. Thanks for listening.